Did any of you try uh, Apple Music? No. I was meaning to sign up for it. It's really good. I tried it for like five minutes and went back to Spotify. Yeah, I, I imagine it's not that much different Like if you're already used to Spotify, but somebody that has tried and didn't really like Spotify. What's the deal? Is this, is this supposed to be like a Spotify clone? Exactly. That's just like so that if you like giving all your money to Apple, you can continue giving all your money to Apple. Well, well like what's you, the point? Like, of using is the that the point? Spotify? I mean, or any insert I'm, and and service. I mean, like, I'm sure the point of Apple's business is so that you get the money. Yes. Well, yeah, but like, why would anyone else use it? So a few things. I mean, it could be it's cheaper if you have a family plan. So I think it's fifteen dollars a month. Uh, but you can have a family plan where you can add up to six people. Hmm. Okay. Um, but I no, I just have tried Spotify before, and yes, as somebody that uses a lot of Apple devices, I find their music in previously iTunes match, nay iTunes match. Um, I found it very like integrated. Like like I, I buy a song on my phone, it, it appears on my computer instantaneously, and vice versa, and like all my stuff syncs together. Uh, it's just a very good experience. Uh, so I like that I now can pay a monthly fee instead of buying albums and listen to any album I want, which is identical to Spotify. I just didn't have Spotify. So to me, it's like awesome. But if you already have Spotify or RDO, it's probably not that big. Is there a web interface? No. No. Do they, do you guys think they plan to do that? I doubt it. Although they are going to have an Android app. Okay. Why do you want a web, web interface? I was just going to make it like the iTunes argument. It's so much iTunes, but it's unlimited now for a monthly price. That's why other people would use it or non-Apple users would use it. It's just this music subscription service that's made by Apple. It's not really... You don't really need to be an Apple fan to use it. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't switched yet. I really like it. I found that uh, whenever I open the app... So they have a bunch of... They have you pick artists, which was a terrible experience because they have like a bunch of red bubbles that are floating around and you can like play with them and like drag them and... Just like tap them to make them bigger to say like I like this artist or I like this genre. That was the really artist obnoxious. They showed, yeah, the artist they showed me like I listened to maybe three out of the fifty they showed me, uh, and to say that I I like those artists was kind of like a strong word. Like like these are my favorite artists. Like that would be taking it too far. And there's no search box to say like oh I know I know who I like. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, worse um, than that, like just, they should know who you like. Like I've been using iTunes for years now. Like they sh- they know how they, many times I've played every artist. Maybe they use that, but like like for instance, like I have the Beatles and Credence in my music collection, but I don't actually want to listen to them on a daily basis. <laughs> like my my musical taste is not really that. Right. So they know your listen count throughout your whole iTunes. So why would That's they true. just use I do that? To every, yeah, but I've they never used iTunes. So what would they mm. do for me? Well, so actually, like my wife, she she signed up for it too, and she uh, we had the family plan, um, and. She doesn't use iTunes near as much as I do. And when she logged in, so what I was going to say is after you pick all of your artists, it shows you this for you screen. Um, and hers was kind of like a little empty until she started using it a little bit. But mine uh, has like uh, has a bunch of like intro to these artists, like these curated playlists. So uh, I found this really cool. I learned about an artist, uh, St. Vincent, which I hadn't listened to before. I think I'd heard one or, one or two of her songs, but I didn't. 
I didn't know the name of the artist or anything like that. Um, that was a pick of mine, by the way. Was it? Yeah. So I've, I've been having like all these like intro to some artist playlists that show up in my my for you, and I've I've liked most of them so far. There's a bunch of like albums that they suggest for you, uh, and then they also have radio stations that are for a mood, which sound sounded terrible when like I heard about it. Like, oh, you're you're driving on a weekend. Here's a playlist for that. Or, I don't know, whatever. Um, but so far, it's been like uh, we woke up one of the weekend mornings, and it said like lazy lazy weekend morning playlist, and and I I tried it, and it was kind of it was kind of perfect. <laughs> uh, I forgot what the other situation was that we were in. But it seems to like take a lot of like contextual stuff and, and give you a playlist that um, is pretty good. So there's that, and then they they also launch a radio station called Beats One, which is 24 hour global radio station hosted from three cities, uh, which seems like a very nice like pop station. I don't listen to like terrestrial radio, so I don't know what the current station is like in Philly um, for that kind of stuff. But it seems like a very good one of those that I'll probably never listen to. Yeah, I have no idea why you'd want to like subject yourself to that now. Like listening to a song, and you're like, oh, I can't listen to that again, or you can't skip a song you don't like. It seems really obnoxious in 2015. I mean, it's probably good like background music if you really don't care about like what it is. I don't know. They talk a lot too. There's a f- I'm not sure who that station's for. There's a three month trial, right? Uh, yes. If you sign up and give them your credit card, they will not charge you for three months. Cool. I've actually thought about switching to the podcast app, the native Apple podcast app, because what? Yeah, it's terrible. But does it have your 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 preferred uh, speed settings? Oh yeah, it has all the speed settings. I've, well, not as fine. I think I have to pick. Like, it has one point five seven two. Yeah, I can't do one point eight. Uh, is that your preferred? Yeah. Well, for most podcasts, it depends on the podcast. Two rabbits. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Just for Siri, like ever since I got the watch, I've started using Siri a lot, and I can't use Siri for my podcasts. So it'd be nice to say, oh, hey Siri, play uh, Turing Incomplete, and it would just start playing. I haven't tried that with podcasts. I use it with music a lot. That's the other reason I like Apple Music over like an external app is because I can control it from Siri. I mean, that stuff used to work ever like in the like iPod Four. Like I used to tell it to play a certain podcast name all the time. Hmm. Because before Siri, there was Voiceover, which in a lot of ways worked better because it didn't need to go to the internet. It would just work. It was a lot more limited. You could just say like, "Oh, play a certain artist, call a certain person." Uh, play a certain playlist but it would it would work and be faster than siri oh yeah i forgot about that that was like the accessibility thing right uh, i think it was just voiceover or i forget what it was called but it was more reliable than siri although you know the last last few months i think siri's gotten a lot better it's been pretty good for me for like the past like i would say year or so but before that it was kind of sketchy so what have you all been up to besides using apple products pam besides not using apple products i said besides using but I was just trying to segue into something else. Um, I don't know. Uh, Have we had a podcast since? Uh, we haven't had a podcast in a while. Liberty JS, uh, Javon spoke at QCon. Len moved across the country. I think this is the first one since Len moved across the country for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because we had to take Seattle? a break for that. It's apparently ridiculously hot. Yes. Len sends his pictures of like him coding on a rooftop with grass and Mount Rainier in the background. It's pretty obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of awful. With a dog next um, to him. A couple weeks ago, uh, this is new-ish, I went and saw Martin Fowler speak. I don't think any of y'all went. Uh, where was he? Where was that? It was a uh, ThoughtWorks did an event in Philly, and so Martin Fowler spoke um, on Conway's Law. And I 
reached out to his co-speaker to see if uh, if she'd be interested in talking about it on the podcast, but I haven't heard anything back. Who did he speak with? Um, Cassie's something. <laughs> Is Conway's Law the one with the uh, products tend to emulate the team structure or whatever? Yeah, it's it's you ship your org chart. Mm. That's Conway's Law. The if you have four teams, you write a four-pass compiler. What? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's like the canonical example of Conway's Law. Is like if you have four teams writing a compiler, you're going to ship a four-pass compiler. Um, I liked. There was one story. uh, Her name is Cassie Shome, by the way. She's a big deal on Android, so that's why I hadn't seen her before. Um, But yeah, she keynoted a a mobile conference uh, pretty recently. But anyway, um, yeah. No, one of the interesting like anecdotes was that some architect who actually like planned out like mentioned an application you know and did the plan according to conway's law because they had like an office in australia and an office in california and they were like well you're obviously going to have at least two completely distinct components so let's start with that because <laughs> <laughs> no matter what we design you're going to end up splitting it up geographically hmm. so i uh, thought that was a funny tidbit but it was it was a good event i ran into a lot of people there I wonder how that plays into like remote teams because you still have like teams in um, like to use air quotes like physical proximity based on like what rooms they're in in like Slack or whatever chat program you use like like there are communication channels. Well, there's certainly um, I mean, and there's certainly teams, and so yeah, you should, like it's, it's you know in that case like when you deal with geographic locations, you're more likely to organize with some thought to geographic. But if you are distributed, you're still going to have teams, and so you're still going to ship your org chart. Yeah. I wanted to go to that, but it was the same bit as the closure workshop in Philly. Yeah. I how did that go? Pretty good. So closure closure Philadelphia had an intro to closure workshop. Closedelphia. Closedelphia. How many people showed up? Maybe seventeen to twenty, I think. That's a lot. Nice. Yeah, including TAs, but it was a good turnout. Did you like uh like teach closure, build closure? Like what was the, the syllabus? Uh, so they piggybacked off the Closure Bridge um, curriculum, uh, but this was their first uh, go around at hosting a workshop, so they didn't want to do it officially. Um, but they kind of explained Closure, um, then uh, the students just went through the exercises, and the TAs kind of hovered and answered questions and stuff like that. And then it, they would take breaks every so often and do a lightning talk on some closure coolness so like showing off the REPL or like a web framework and things like that so it was good and but not as stressful which is good because there are breaks and kind of talks and stuff like that so it's pretty good we Sounds all really cool we all ate donuts what kind of donuts from Byler's Ooh. they were hesitant at first and then somebody was like oh my god these are good donuts and then they're all gone those are good donuts so but it was cool to see uh, people or seasoned closure developers use the REPL um, in a more powerful way versus just evaluating code or like typing closure code in the REPL. Um, yeah. That'd be cool to see. Maybe there's like a video or something, like a talk that to get the same effect. Yeah, maybe. I haven't seen one, but maybe if I Google or maybe I can do one. That'd be <laughs> cool. Learn about it. The one cool thing was uh, this person was doing a web framework talk and he was saying, 
I kind of want to. I want to see the the response, the JSON response from this this method. And he was just like doing his key chords in Emacs, and it showed up in the REPL with the staff's code on the body and all that. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So, are you still using Emacs? I am actually doing the workshop. I wrote uh, a few Emacs functions to uh, add the focus equals true in Ruby code or RSpec. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I'm, I'm still committed. Uh, a coworker of mine has, uh, he didn't really offer. I just kind of said, hey, you're going to teach me this. Um, he's been using SpaceMax. Oh, nice. And so while, while I'm in uh, Denver, while, while the whole team's in Denver, I'm going to accost him to teach me some stuff. That's pretty cool. I started with SpaceMax. Um, and you graduated? No, no, no. So Is SpaceMax like Janus? Like I'm going to ditch it in like a month? Well, 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 Janus was like a year for me, but I don't. So it provides so much. It really depends, I think, on who you are as a dot files person. If you really like things your way and you want to know how things work, probably in a few months. Um, well, my problem with Space Max is I don't use Emacs like other Emacs users. I quit Emacs all the time, <laughs> and uh, the, the startup time is just brutal. So what do you, what do they do? That they control Z. No, they just leave it open. Some of them control Z. Oh, some of them use the Emacs daemon thing, which is like the Emacs client, um, which just is always running. Um, what do you mean you don't leave, like, do you leave them open? No, I close it all the time. Like, what, what is all the time? Like, at the end of the day or, like, every five minutes? Um, at least three times a day. Or I'll open, uh-huh. up, I'll open up Vim to do a quick edit and then close it. But oh yeah, I'll do that. Right. So you, with Space Max or Emacs in general, there's like a boot time. Mm. Um, but if you're running the Emacs client, there's there's just a daemon running that. It's like a like the NeoVim client, I think, similar. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but it's nice. It, it comes with a lot of things, and Emacs is my primary editor now. So Justin, why are you in Denver? For GopherCon. Um, the entire HashiCorp team is here. You should say hi to Aditya. He's there. I will. So Definitely look will. for him. <laughs> Friend of the show. Yeah, yes. former guest. Is HashiCorp heavily invested in Go? Yes. yes. Uh, all of our open source products, except for Vagrant, are written in Go right now. And uh, we have a lot of Go services behind the scenes. I, I usually don't work on Go. I work on Atlas, which is the Rails app. Um, but there's some Go stuff behind that, and then I occasionally... Will work on Terraform, which is written in Go. Are you, is anyone speaking from HashiCorp? Or uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay, just here to hang out and learn and market. Probably that too. Any talks that you're looking forward to? Yes, I was going to do a. I was actually about my, my picks a couple minutes ago. Um, there's this thing called GoKit, uh, and it is a. So Netflix has a bunch of tools written in Java to. To make it easier for them to deploy services in a like maintainable way, so they have like a thing to uh, allow services to talk to each other. They have a thing to allow services to discover each other. They have a thing to like record metrics. They have a thing to uh, when services talk to each other. If one service goes down, uh, it's called the circuit breaker pattern. So if one service goes down and requests start queuing behind that, the service that's sending those requests will will back off. Um, but just like that, like if you have a bunch of components, a bunch of services connected together that you that are nice to have. Um, so Netflix has that. There's a one from Twitter written in Scala called Finagle. Um, and 
GoKit is the same thing or, or is striving to be the same thing in Go. And I think, I don't know if I heard it on a podcast or read it somewhere, but their, uh, their mission statement or, or goals are that for Go to get to the next level in the enterprise, it needs a framework like this. Uh, so, yeah, that seems pretty cool. Uh, there's stuff, a bunch of stuff happening inside of Go, which is interesting if you write Go and probably not so much if you don't. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to go to talks I don't know much about and probably learn a lot of stuff. There's some workshops tomorrow that I'm not sure if I'm going to go to or not, but they seem interesting. But I think you need a ticket. That seems to be the new pattern for conferences. Has that always been a thing, or is it just popular now, where they'll do workshops before the conference? I feel like almost every conference I've been to has had workshops. They're usually more beginner-focused. These seem a little more advanced. Um, And I usually always miss them, because what happens is a conference says, like, hey, we're having a conference Wednesday and Thursday. And then I book a flight for, like, Wednesday night. And they're like, hey, we're having a workshop Wednesday or, or Tuesday. Whatever. The day before the conference starts, I usually get there the night of, and then there's usually stuff that day that I miss. Same thing with leaving. Conferences tend to have a hack day the day after, and I usually leave like that night or the next morning. Do you do you ever plan for like slack time around the conference? I have, but I've been hearing from more and more friends that like we don't like it anymore. <laughs> They're like they are just tired, and then yeah. you just you just want to go home and be in your own apartment and not be like if you're gonna like hang out somewhere and hide from everyone, you might as well do it at home. Right. I was gonna say that usually by the end of the conference, I just want to go home. As much as I love everyone there, it's just like oh, I, miss, I miss. The only exception would be like a true destination, like when well, and bringing your partner. So that's yeah, a big that one. would that would be really cool. Because um, you you did that last time you went to Denver, right? Yes, a uh, conference in Boulder, uh, LambdaConf. Uh, my wife and daughter came with me. Yeah. We have, we, so we have like, friends in, in Denver area. Yeah, when you bring your people, then yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, that was totally cool. We went for a hike the day after the, the last day of the conference with the conference people organized it. And that was really cool. Uh, yeah, we actually stayed for two days after the conference. We might do the same thing in, uh, I should probably know when this is. <laughs> Their, uh, HashiCon- uh, HashiCorp is having a Hash- HashiConf. And it's in Portland, and we have always wanted to go to Portland, so we might we might make a vacation out of it around that. You just take the Bolt bus up to Seattle. That's what I was gonna say. I'll be I'll be so close to Len. Like my mind, they're like right next to each other. They basically are. It's like a two hour drive. Ride a bike. So it's like New York and Philly, which I've been in New York like three times in my life. <laughs> September twenty eighth to the twenty ninth is HashiCorp conference or HashiCorp. September and, and September. Okay, cool. Why would you ever go to New York, Len? Because it's so easy. You get on the Megabus, uh, get your computer out, you spend two hours working, and then you're in New York. I went I went once on a field trip when I was a kid, and then uh, when I was in school, and then I think we went to the like, Statue of Liberty, and then I went for Goruko, and then uh, we went on vacation last summer um, to go see a play. So in my 30 years of living in Philadelphia, I've been to New York three times. So, Len, are you looking forward to bringing, instead of just us talking about Philadelphia, that you can talk about Seattle on the podcast? Uh, sure. Although, no, and I don't know. I'll, I'll have to talk myself about it. <laughs> do you feel like it's like, do you feel at home there now? Like it's your town, or do you still feel like, a, like you're visiting? Uh, I still get lost all the time. <laughs> um, I think yeah. there there is a feeling, though, that like when something feels like home anymore, when I've moved a lot, I've, I've noticed that you can kind of tell when somewhere is not home anymore. There's like signals. Yeah, it's kind of like 
or at least for cities, it's easy because it's like the warm fuzzies I get feeling seeing the skyline. So when a city doesn't have a skyline, I don't know what to do. Not live in cities. I don't know. So yeah, the biggest culture shock. I still shock really is, like Philly skyline. Biggest culture shock is just where you, you can have your dog like everywhere, like every single bar, every single restaurant. The movies. I haven't seen a dog in the movies. It's yet. Corey Barker. So is Corey Barker with you all the time? Uh, so while establishments are dog friendly, he's not so establishment friendly. We're, <laughs> we're still having an issue. So this is the like first time we've lived with him in an apartment complex. And before we lived in a house. Uh, so now he thinks like we own the apartment complex. So he barks at everyone he sees <laughs> inside the apartment. He's like, get out of my house. So it's a little bit of a problem. <laughs> we like take the stairs to avoid him seeing people in the elevator. Oh, man. I don't know. Is there, are there tips on how to fix that? We're looking at getting a trainer. I'm not sure. He's actually, he's getting a little better. He's, he now thinks we just own like third floor. <laughs> Sounds so funny when you say that. Corey thinks he owned the third floor. Has anyone learned anything cool technically lately? I'm kind of stuck lately. Although I did, I put in a pull request to uh, Higgs. The other day, I got to update it so it could actually is, get merged. What is Higgs? So, so Higgs is a just-in-time compiler for JavaScript. It's written in the D language. Oh, cool. Uh, I did not write any D though. I was I'm working on adding to their standard library. So, the convenient part of that is that it's all in JavaScript. So the standard library. So this is like. Is this like Node, like you take JavaScript and run it on your machine, or? It's it's like V8. Okay. Like it's the compiler. I see. As far as I can tell. I don't actually know how you would plug it in somewhere and use it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I can run the c- command line or, you know, mostly I can run the command line, I guess. That's, that's pretty cool. Is it like... Wrote, uh, is it better than oh, V8 because it's not in C? Like it's safer? Like it's. No, I mean, I don't know about that. Um, there is some some posts on their blog say it's faster than V8, but uh, mostly it's that they're just also a really nice open source project. And um, the one of the contributors spoke at LibertyJS, and that's how I found out about it. And so, oh, cool. So I went around looking in their issues and saw that they want to extend the standard library to include ES6 stuff. So. I can implement those in JavaScript. Oh, neat. So, Can you talk about sort of how you decided to contribute? Because I feel like that's when people are getting I mean, into open source. It's, they're always like, oh. Yeah, I mean, I heard, well, especially hearing when Tommy gave her talk at Liberty JS, she was really, like, really insistent on, you know, being pro-contributors and... Uh, saying that the project was very open to new contributors. And then I went on and sure enough, they have issues open and like all the conversations seemed, you know, pretty nice. Uh, So I don't know. I was just like, since I I literally met someone who worked on it and it seemed fairly accessible uh, and I found an issue that I could actually work on. That's one of those things that's really hard too, is I find like I was lucky that I feel like that was part of it is like, I'll get, you know, I'll find a new, like what I do is I star uh, repos on GitHub. And then when I have like an afternoon that I want to go look at stuff, I'll go look at my starred repositories and see if I see anything and issues that I can help with. But that's cool. 
Yeah. And so then like one that I've really want to contribute to, but I have, that's a really popular project that, but it has so many issues that are like, once you read the discussion, it's like, oh, this is like already solved, but it's blocked by something else. Or like, this is, you know, limited by not having technology that exists yet. Um, or like various things that make it definitely like not something you can work on, but that, that project's render, which is, um, server side rendering, um, for JavaScript apps. And so since I want to, I picked that one because I actually, I guess it's, you know, I think your question is interesting, Duran, because it's kind of a similar answer to why I was interested in Higgs is like, well, I don't really know much about compilers. Um, for render, it's like, I kind of, I get what render is doing, but I feel like I want to deeply understand it. And so trying to find an issue that I can work on that gets me to actually read the source is one of the motivators. Cool. <laughs> what have you learned so far about JITs and JavaScript? Um, JITs. Uh, I mean, I learned that I could run, like, well, they, I mean, Justin would like them because they use make everywhere. <laughs> so they use See make for heart. all the stuff. I was um, ready to make today. You want to talk about exciting technologies? If you want me to fall asleep on the podcast. Um, <laughs> But uh, no, it's it's kind of interesting. It's also interesting because you can kind of see like where this project started in one place and how it's been evolving. Like when you look at the source code as a whole, because it's a big project. Um, so I don't know. I found that kind of interesting in terms of looking at the compiler. I only read some of the D. I mostly like I had to write the are the tests in D. I, they might be. Uh, no, I don't think they are. I think the tests are in JavaScript for the standard library. Yeah, they are. But I was looking at some of the D because I wasn't sure if I needed to edit the the D stuff. Uh, I didn't though, so that's cool. But but also that oh, D doesn't look terribly difficult. Looks fine. It was on my list to look at before I stopped looking at languages. Really, some someday I'll get to it. But yeah, maybe I should actually learn stuff about compilers, and then I'll. I I feel like I've been. I so I've for the past couple of years written a blog post every single week, and I haven't now I haven't written a blog post in a month, so that's not good. It actually, might be three years that I've been writing a blog post every single week, except oh, wow. for breaks for holidays. Um, so if anyone has suggestions on things they want me to write about, that would be cool. I'm just, I'm just stuck. I don't know. I really enjoyed. Um, I'm really enjoying the book uh, Understanding Computation. And part of that is you don't really write a comp actually do kind of write a compiler. You do you write a compiler. You don't really. Uh, I mean, I guess you do write a compiler. So is this well, you, is this computationbook.com? Is that what this is? Yes. Uh, okay. I think I'm googling let, it. Look at the chapters first. Is there anywhere um, we can go to hear more about this book? <laughs> so I marketing genius, Len. <laughs> I yeah. I started another podcast called CS Book Club. And we're reading oh. Understanding Computation right now. Um, and yeah, so we, we like record every few weeks and read a chapter. So right now we're, I think we're chapter seven right now. Um, so it starts out with like how to implement like parsers and, and also a bunch of like high level stuff about um, semantics. Like you actually like write a programming language that looks like Ruby kind of. It's hard to explain. You're not actually like writing a like parser and compiler in like a traditional sense, but you're learning about how they work. Um, and as somebody that does not have a computer science degree, I've been finding a lot of these things eye-opening. 
like the reason why you shouldn't parse regular expressions with uh, I'm sorry, the reason why you shouldn't parse HTML or anything else that has opening and closing tags with regular expressions is because you can't. Um, and that reason is in chapter three. It's because you can't. <laughs> yeah, uh, because they don't have memory. Like a regular expression, the way it's implemented should not have memory. There is like Perl style regular expressions. What about groups? Have, I don't know if we went into groups. You should read the first five chapters and we can talk about it. <laughs> Okay, cool. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's really cool. Uh, I, I learned how uh, a Turing machine works. Um, we're now learning about Lambda Calculus. And uh, Chapter 8, I have heard about. I think on the Ruby Rogues, I've heard them talk about it. And they had um, the author, Tom Stewart, on when they talked about like uh, the halting problem and decidability, which is essentially like halting problem, most abstractedly, is if impossible to write a program that tells that can tell if another program uh finishes so if i if i write a program that like finds like pi to the four thousandth number or whatever um you can't write a program that proves that my program finishes and apparently that has like a whole lot of uh not effects but like that that ripples out into like a lot of different other areas uh that are a little more practical and then there's like other things that are not computable. Uh, so I don't know. I'm just really enjoying learning all this stuff, and hopefully we'll pick another cool book to read soon. And yeah, and the podcast I think is it's not very popular right now, um, but I think it's kind of unique in that I hope that we can like the episodes are, not, are timeless. Like they're not like recorded on a date and then you listen to it when it comes out and then that's it. I want it to be like a a resource that you can go to, like maybe five year, five years from now, you're reading this book, you can pull it up and listen to it, and have like a a book club without a physical book book club. Um, and I think also it's not going to be the same people recording every time, like maybe even not me. Um, so you'll have like a variety of people recording different books, but we'll see if it actually goes past this one. Who's on this current series? Uh, it's myself, uh, Ashton Harris, who's from Philadelphia. Uh, and then Amy Unger and Brian Cobb. I used to work with Brian at a, another company, and Brian and Amy both live in Madison. I think she organizes Madison Ruby. I'm not sure. How did you get in touch with these people from Madison? Are you moving to Madison? No, no, no. I used to work with Brian, and, and he knew Amy. Oh, cool. My, for my first remote job. So, yeah, podcasts. But uh, Understanding Computation is a really good book. Uh I also just finished reading Programming Elixir by Dave Thomas, and that was really well written. Like I learned a lot too, but like I'm really impressed about how well it was written. Just like the pace at which um, he introduces concepts and uh, the examples that he uses, they're just really, they're really good. Did you ever watch uh, Dave Thomas's Metaprogramming Ruby series? I don't think so. I think those are like the best programming instructional videos I've ever watched. Like I just kind really? of sat down and watched them, and I'm like. I felt like I just like you know got a cheat sheet into Ruby and understanding how objects and message passing and metaprogramming worked. That sounds really cool. I'll check it out. So yeah, I'm um, I'm learning Elixir right now, and I'm forcing myself to to build something so that I learn it. Would that be? Yeah, kind of. I kind of. Are you what? building something bigger than a URL shortener? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like a little like Twitter search subscription service thing. It's it's kind of incidental. Like so, I found that like I hate learning things that I don't feel like learning, but I don't mind learning things for, 
like I actually enjoy writing uh, Elixir so far, but I didn't really have like anything to build in it. So I'm kind of like just building something that I don't really care too much about just to force myself to have to learn everything. So I'm, I'm enjoying the learning process, but the thing I'm building is kind of like inconsequential. <laughs> so if I met you at a conference and you, I was like, Justin, what are you writing? And you say Elixir, what, was the, what would be the coolest thing that you would tell me to sell me uh, on it? Uh well to tell you I I wouldn't really be that impressive because you write closure sometimes um but there's a pipeline operator so in 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 Ruby or other like object oriented programming languages you call methods on things so you would say like uh user you know find the first user and then get their name and then you know capitalize the first letter or whatever um and those are all the method calls on the previous object. And then in a functional language, you would, like, like Clojure or, or JavaScript even, uh, you would have a function that, like, capitalizes a string and a function that, uh, I guess in JavaScript, you would actually call the name property on the user. Um, but in Elixir, so you can, like, say, like, user equals get the user, whatever, uh, and then say, like, name equals user.name and then say, you know, capitalize equals and then have like a capitalization function and then pass user to it or the, or the name to it. But there's a pipeline operator which takes in uh, the previous result of something and passes it as the first argument to the next thing. So it takes this uh, functional programming language and makes it feel like that kind of object-oriented like read left to right style thing. So you have like your user and then pipeline, uh, you know, fetch name, pipeline, capitalize. And it just it's a really nice way of taking these things and, and composing them together. Like uh, Phoenix, the web framework, and Plug, which is the kind of like um, Ruby's rack for Elixir. Uh, I use this all the time where you have a connection and then you pipe the connection through things. Um, so to like, if you're responding to a request, take the connection and then you uh, pipeline through something that adds the status code and then something else that adds the body of the response. Maybe you add a header too. Um, each of these things is a pipeline. Uh, sort of related, um, if you're doing like Rails, uh, there's a web framework called Phoenix and a database framework or ORM layer called uh, Ecto. And in, in Rails and Active Record, we one thing we do a lot is like we create objects, uh, mo- model objects that are persisted. So we say like model.new and then we hit, then we type save or we say model.create. And it's like a very stateful thing. Like you're telling this thing to save itself. Uh, the interesting way that, that Elixir solves this is, or Ecto solves this, is you you have like an empty object. And if you like accept params from a user and you want to update that object in the database, uh, there's a function to take an empty object or, or the existing object and then apply those parameters. And it actually generates a change set. And then in active record, you have like valid question mark, which does a bunch of validations in the model. Um, in Elixir or Necto, the the change set is valid or not? Like, is it valid to make this change? And then once you have that change set, you can pass that to a repository to store it or to update it. Um, so like, you're never calling methods on the object itself to like change itself and change other things. You are very explicitly making the changes you want with data structures, and then you're passing that on to something else to say, here, store this, or here, update this. Um, it's kind of hard to explain without like showing code, but uh, it feels very refreshing and interesting to me. I actually, I really enjoy uh, pattern matching. 
and how many yeah how many conditionals you can avoid by just having pattern matched like functions yeah i really like that too so like you know the the typical example is you know if you're doing recursion uh, and you want to kick out of a function uh, you know when like a number is zero uh, you basically instead of having the function have a conditional you just write the function twice and you write it once uh, and you write it once with a pattern uh, so instead of taking a variable you assume the variable you're getting is zero and then when that variable is zero that uh, instance of the function will uh, be called or definition of the function. I think my favorite part is that like every all the functions you call are very explicit about where they come from. Like, so there are modules which are just places to organize your functions, and then there are the functions themselves. And if you don't like, uh, I don't forget the keyword like import or use use a a module to to bring the functions into the current scope, uh, then they're not there. I guess it's kind of like Python in that regard. Um, but there's no like magic like oh where did this thing come from, <laughs> like almost all, all the time, like the functions that you're calling have the module name right before the function name. It can be a little verbose, like more verbose than just chaining methods on an object, uh, but it's very easy to look up documentation when you know where things came from versus like an Active Directory model that has like 3,000 methods on it and you have no idea which one came from where. I also like the extra layer in Phoenix too. So instead of as in Rails where you just have a model of you and controller in Phoenix, you have a view which kind of does, I guess, like some presenter slash decorator logic. And then you have a template, which is just HTML. I like that distinction. How is the ecosystem? I remember really liking the tools around it. It seems really good so far. And there's a lot of code already written in Erlang that also works in Elixir. I feel like the Elixir community is also dragging the Erlang community into modern-day tooling. Uh, there's a package manager called Hex, which, in, which installs Erlang packages. And uh, that seems like it's relatively recently uh, getting a lot of adoption. Yeah, the tooling's really good, though. Uh, I, I kind of... A lot of people have been saying, like, this is, like, the next Ruby and Rails. And I kind of, I kind of think they're right. <laughs> um... I don't know, like Rails will probably never go away, but... I think it provides a lot of... It solves a lot of the needs for, like, modern-day problems. Not modern-day, but problems that people are having, like WebSockets and stuff. Yeah, or or another good example is, like, uh, microservices. Like, the desire to, to use microservices, because people keep building these, like, monolithic applications that get really... Uh, they have a lot of, like, intertwined dependencies that are not explicit, and it's so easy, like, in a Rails app to, like, reach across boundaries and, and use things. Um, but then if you start with microservices, you kind of, you know, you get stuck with the overhead of, of making all these things talk to each other, and that's not really that pleasant either. So unless you have, like, a large number of teams, like we were saying Common's Law earlier, that need to communicate in that way, then it doesn't really make sense to do microservices either. Um, but in e- e- Elixir, Erlang, and... Um, OTP, which is a which is an actor framework, uh, kind of. It's like an application framework. Uh, with these things, you can actually like. Well, a good example is in Phoenix, which is the Elixir version of Rails. The the server itself is a process, is an application, but then also the database is also its own application. So there 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 are separate things running in memory that talk to each other via message passing. So. So when a request comes into a controller and needs to do something in the database, it sends a message across this very explicit boundary and says, here, I need to get this thing out of the database. And then it responds back, here, here you go. Um, 
and it's just as easy. It's it's extremely easy, especially with um, the tooling, to generate new applications. And it, it kind of you kind of have to like change the way you think about writing code or uh, architecting an application to to make use of these uh, like kind of like little tiny services inside of Erlang. And but once you do, like it, they're they're all all the methods for those those processes to talk to each other are already built in, like serialization and like addressing. Um, and if for some reason you need to like only run your database server on one machine and then web servers on another machine, it's it's sort of trivial to do that once you need to scale up, um, or or if you need to like take these the set of services and only running on these machines. Um, well, it's not the database; it's Ecto itself, right? CRM it's is its own process. Yeah, yeah, not 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 like Postgres its own process, but like because I mean that's already database. pretty normal and else generally. Yeah. Is there like a code school or like a try elixir thing yet? So um, there's the docs, which is really good. So that's actually how I learned. The, the Phoenix docs go through a step by step of like how to like kind of like the Rails like you know getting started guides. Um, but to learn Elixir itself, I would highly recommend uh, that book from from Prague programmers. Uh, Elixir itself is a fairly simple syntax though. Like it's it looks like Ruby. But it doesn't do any weird shit. <laughs> like Ruby's kind of like uh, like blocks have like do an end, right? Uh, except when you're using a class or module or def. Like it has all these like weird uh, edge case rules for the syntax. Whereas Elixir is just very like no, you put do an end everywhere, and 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 the block is actually always a keyword. So if you had a multi-line method, you'd write def thing do, and the body of your method, then you'd write end. But you could also, if it's a one-line method, you could write def method name, comma, do, colon, like, like pass it as like a keyword argument, and then put your block in there, and then you don't need the end on the end of it. It's, it kind of like has like this nice inline syntax. And just the way that all these pieces are built up from, from other Elixir code, uh, I, guess, I guess macros in, in most cases, uh, there's much less magic going on than, like Ruby's a very complex language to to compile and interpret for a computer, and probably a human too. <laughs> I don't know. I've talked to a couple people recently that have said, like, oh, if I was starting an app from scratch, I would use Elixir and Phoenix. Um, and I've just, just now started hearing that, and I think it just went 1.0 very recently too. Was it this year? So that makes sense. Um, but it seems like like I've seen people on Twitter, like consultancies, saying, oh, we're starting to get, like, Elixir work, and... Um, I think that I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Phoenix ships with Ember, or it wants you to use Ember. No, I was actually no. running into a little problem trying to figure out how to get like I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, trying to get Ember CLI and, and Phoenix to go together. So it does Wait, ship with Brunch and ES6 Transpiler out of the gate, which is really nice. Oh, uh, that's what it is. It has JavaScript stuff in it. Yeah, live reload just automatically works out of the box. Yeah, six is a uh, default, so that stuff's really nice. It has web sockets built in, kind of. It, it, they call them uh, channels, but there's like a first class uh, thing similar to like a controller for sending live things to the client. Right. Yeah, server side and client side consumers for it, which is really nice. How does server side work? Just blew my mind, Lynn. <laughs> I'll paste a link to some examples. Elixir is a very nice language, and it, it, it takes a lot of cues from a lot of other languages in a nice way. Like, I think their doc strings came from uh, Python, and the syntax came from Ruby mostly. I think macros are coming from Clojure. could be wrong, though. 
So there's a functional geekery episode with mm-hmm. Jose Valim, and he talks about the different features of Elixir and where he, uh, like, what he took from other languages. He basically there was like a long process of him trying other languages and seeing what he liked and what people were talking about. And then he, he tried to bring those things in into Elixir. I'll get a link to it. So I think it's about time for picks. Justin, do you have any picks? I was going to pick uh, GoKit, but now I've already talked about it. Uh, talk about the book. I mean, can't you pick it anyway? I have a pick. Go for it. Can I go? Um, my pick is this old thing. Well, old. It says 2001, um, How to Become a Hacker. That uh, I just think it's kind of a cool thing on the internet. Um that's like, hey, maybe learn how to program and learn how to do stuff. And here's what hacker culture is. And oh, I just think it's kind of cool. I haven't read the whole thing, disclaimer. Um, but I think it's pretty interesting. Javon, do you have a pick? Yes. Uh, my programming pick is a book called Coders at Work. Uh, it's a book that just goes through, interviews a bunch of programmers um, and asks them certain questions. It's pretty good and insightful. Um, there's also an Elixir talk, I think, on Confreaks that talks about rewriting their Ruby API in Elixir um, using some of Elixir's um, strengths. I don't remember the title, but I'll get a link to that. And then my music pick. Um, I don't really have one this week. <laughs> Sad face. Uh, so, yes. Those are my picks. So my pick is the, uh, the Pragmatic Programmers uh, book, Seven Concurrency Models in Seven Weeks. Uh, I've been enjoying that. Uh, it just talks about different models of concurrency and the difference between concurrency and parallelism. So like doing uh, you know mutexes and uh, FP actors, etc. Uh, Justin, do you have a pick? No, I'm just going to go with those other two. All right. So I take that back. I'll pick something music-related. So DJ Jazzy Jeff has a YouTube series called Vinyl Destination. And he's a DJ that travels all around the world. And they basically record themselves in different countries um, and sometimes play some music. So that would be my music pick. That's it, I promise. So show notes are at turing.cool slash 55. Follow us on Twitter at turingcool. And I'll talk to you guys next week. See ya. Bye. Bye.